Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations with Kirk. I'm Kirk Faulkner and today I am joined by, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this earlier, I know your name is Tyler. Me too. Is it McGahey? It is. Okay. It is. Because I see your name written so much online and I don't, I couldn't, I was like, I, I can't remember mm. anybody actually saying his last name out loud. Fun times at Catholic school. Yeah, McGahey. A, okay, yeah. cool. M-C-G-A-H-E-E? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, good to see you. Thanks. Good so Tyler, you. I've had a few people over for the, the podcast already. Tyler's the first one who came over with dinner, which was amazing. That is true. Can you give me the full description of what you brought over for dinner? Oof. Uh, so it's a eight ounce Angus burger with uh, some handmade Dijon aioli. I made uh, mixed berry compote. I made a uh, balsamic vinegar of Modena reduction and then there's baby arugula some triple brie cream triple cream brie and uh it's on the brioche buns and they were pretty good they were pretty good it was fantastic i mean it was uh one of the most artisanal burgers i think mm. i've had um the meat was delicious mm. and you prepared it a certain way yeah 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 it was um i kind of break certain rules of uh of really good burgers but it's it's black angus it was a really nice uh, 80% black Angus, but it's uh, I mixed in some ancho chili and smoked paprika, um, which you know, gives it a little bit of sweetness to, to go well with everything else. But then I um, you sous vide it for about an hour in 125 degree water, which is now, below medium rare and it's above rare. So earlier when we were talking, I pretended like I knew what the word sous vide meant, but oh. <laughs> I, now now oh, that yeah. we're on on cam or on, uh, oh, on I mic. See. Please explain to me what sous vide is. The big guy with the smoker I want to borrow is... Uh, um, <laughs> Smoking is like the baby frolics town of oh, like it's cooking. Good. It's cooking with broad strokes. <laughs> Don't say that in Texas. But um, yeah, so sous vide is this originally French technique where uh, the words literally translate to under vacuum and you take the food that you want to cook, typically proteins is how it started. You You... Um, get all the air. you put it into a, a bag and you get all the air out and you put it in a water bath with a perfectly controlled temperature and uh, the beauty of it is that as proteins especially heat up they contract and they start to squeeze out all their juices right that's why you have a, a dry roast or, or a dry burger or whatever it is um, but you do have to take it to a certainly certain temperature to start breaking down the connective tissue mm -hmm. and the tough things and to start breaking down those cell membranes. So you get that nice juicy bite and also so it, you know, it's food safe. So there's a, there's a balance you have to strike, um, between how much and what types of connective tissues you're, you're going to break down and they'll break down into gelatin, which is this really nice slick mouthfeel versus, um, how, how much of the natural juices you're going to expel and sort of have more of a drier meat. Yeah. So, you know, the higher end of that, if you're really good at smoking, you can, you know, break down all the connective tissue and the meat just kind of falls apart and yeah, it kind of retains. Crazy how, it's crazy how moist it'll stay. Exactly. If like, you can get it right, yeah. which can be very tricky with a smoker, right? It'll run away mm -hmm. or get too cold or all sorts of stuff. Um, so sous vide literally has this, you have this device in there that's sucking in the water, measuring its temperature, saying how much heat should I add, add some heat to it. And then it keeps the water moving, and it never goes above whatever you set it at. So uh, 120 degrees is a like bright red rare for okay. a steak or for you know any cuts yeah. of beef. 
um, all the way up to like 165 is like a really nice pull apart brisket or something like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a smoked brisket. Um, but the thing is a smoker, you really don't get down below 200 unless you're really good at it or you have some kind of magic machine in, in the, in the, the, the temperature of the smoker itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do want to, there's certain meats that you want to smoke at 185, 195. Yeah. Um, but that has been my challenge with the smoker is keeping it lit and not that hot. Exactly. Like yeah. it's easy to get the temperature way up, but oh, keeping yeah. it kind of smoldering is the, that's, the that's trick. what I mean. Yeah. When you say it's, it's the easy part of cooking. I say, no, it's not like there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a trick to it. Yeah, I was just, for sure. I was being self-effacing. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. You know me. You need to do that. More. I'm very humble. So humble. I have, I have several podcasts. Tell me again how massive you are. How, how <laughs> massive are you? Did you accidentally bump me into me over here? But, uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's this amazing joke this early yeah. in the podcast. It wasn't, but it can be if oh, that's okay. where you wanted to go. Now, now, now I've taken yeah, to the, the wrong place. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's an awesome technique for cooking. And then um, some of my favorite molecular gastronomy chefs have Thomas Keller and, and things like that mm-hmm. um, uh, have taken it to all sorts of crazy, amazing levels of working with fruits and vegetables and and um, yeah, on and on. So. So earlier this evening, I, I went to call you a molecular gastronomist, but I wasn't sure if that was going to be like a compliment or not. But you very much self-identify as a molecular gastronomist. I aspire. I, I aspire. aspire. Do you? I, I didn't mention this earlier. Do you know I used to live around the corner from WD-50? No. You know WD-50, right? Yeah. yeah. They have a crazy molecular gastronomy place in That's the awesome. Lower East Side of Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would always love... Take any anytime anybody like slightly square <laughs> came in from out of town. <laughs> yeah, right. I always took them to the molecular gastronomy place. I'm like, oh, look awesome. at how crazy things are in the mm. big city. <laughs> we took apart the drink and we put it back together. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my god, they are so crazy. Oh out my god, oh my god, can you believe New York? <laughs> yeah. All right, so Tyler, um, actually, I was gonna jump into your history real fast, but actually, I'd like to just reminisce for a second about how we met. We met through our friend Joy Desena, right? And Desena, Desena, Desena. Edit that out. I, just fuck. No, it's fine. it is Desena, but I just. I, it, I think it's something to point out. I don't know how to say the last names of any of my friends. I pretty much talk to all my friends digitally, so I. I, I, I talk to them digitally. I read their last names, and then when I see them, I say exactly. their first names. I never say anybody's last name until I'm on a podcast. <laughs> with them. So Joy Desena, um, really great. Oh man marketing and and kind of in the maker world of san diego she's oh she's amazing yeah. she's awesome uh her daughter and i are both big fans of the same cartoon uh uh, uh steven universe mm. really <laughs> i really uh, bond too closely with kids for being a single male in his 40s <laughs> like, i probably should I keep touch, my i can't touch that i, I should probably but keep my i my will say as far as as far as uh kids go izzy is amazing amazing and, and not i, I really do feel like some of my friends have these kids who are like really challengingly like advanced absolutely like um suzanne's uh Suze, daughter yeah. uh, is uh sadie mm-hmm. she's crazy she tells me all these jokes that um She's like, already a better comedian than you. Do you know she is a better comedian than me? <laughs> she this is the one that she told me. Um, she told me too. She, why, why didn't the um, lifeguard save the hippie? He was too far out, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one she told me, which I hadn't heard up to that point, was, "What's a pirate's favorite letter?" 
It's not R. You would think it was R, but it's really the seven C's. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> this girl's like nine years old. Anyway, Man. great jokes. Uh, but Joy had a dinner party at her house and you cooked m- most of the food, if not all of all it. Of it. No, all of it. No, it's a, uh, yeah, no, I, I First I, uh, time I met you, I ate uh, your food. It was um, it was terrible. No steaks. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, uh, I had literally only been cooking for like two months, and uh, Joy's birthday was coming up, and she had some plans, and they fell through. And I guess I was just like, "Shit!" I'll pull together the whole thing for her. She's one of my best friends. We go. We go remind me. Remind me what we ate. We ate. <laughs> oh man, I went. I went to all the grocery stores, and I found the most exotic fruits I could. Oh right. And it was uh, like, you know, dragon fruits, which are amazing, and the. Um, it was a very conceptual meal. cactus fruit and all this stuff. And I made like a fruit salad of just the craziest shit. Crazy, crazy None of fruit. it went together at all, right? By any means. Yeah. I didn't, it was just a bunch of fresh fruit on a plate. It was and like, it was, you think you know what fruit salad is, <laughs> motherfucker? <laughs> you haven't seen my fruit, fruit salad? stuffed into a dragon fruit shell. And you're like, what is happening? Yeah. And I like got some rambutan and I never knew what rambutan was or how to prepare it or serve it. So you just had these fuzzy balls on the plate. And I was like, great. The more fuzzy balls, the better. And then I just did um, like a reverse sear for a, like, oh, I gave everybody like a 12 ounce porterhouse steak. They, it was super high quality. Meat oh, too. yeah. It was like, great. You must have spent a, a couple hundred yeah. bucks on that meat. Oh, it was so <laughs> awesome. Um, and then, so it was just like you bake it till it's medium rare in the center yeah. and then you sear it in the pan. The thing is, I was serving for eight people and I never done that before and we only had she doesn't have this like fully equipped kitchen she had one pan so i was like searing one steak at a time and by the time that one was done that you know the next one would be cold you sound like you're you're making it sound like it wasn't a a complete success it was awesome yeah it was fantastic very interesting people i met you that night i don't remember his name i bet yusuf yes yusuf i love yeah yeah yeah. he's like the young chemist i was going to call him yeah a uh, very interesting guy. You might prefer that. We can crop out his name. I'm kidding. Well, there's there's plenty of Yusufs out there. <laughs> yeah. Like we won't we won't pinpoint which one. <laughs> yeah. No, Yusuf's a just a little genius guy. And, yeah. Um, it was a high yeah, caliber of conversation that night, which I you know obviously appreciate. Yeah. No, I love it. I'm trying to I capture now. That was awesome. Um, yeah. And uh, we've hung out a couple times. We've been camping at least once. Yeah, I guess only once. I'm, I'm, I'm acting like I don't like. There might be some variance on how well, many. If times you release this after this weekend, after I drag you out, I, yeah, I'm gonna try. You know, it's gonna rain all weekend, right? <laughs> Just on Saturday. <laughs> no, it starts Thursday. Not in Anza Brego, but oh, okay. yeah, fair enough. There's a mountain range that kind of blocks a lot of it. But. Um, and uh, we also had a, a season of Game of Thrones. Yeah, that we watched at your yeah, house yeah. together, and then also Rick and Morty too. Yeah, I yeah. honestly some uh, good ass TV. In good our, TV, in, yeah. yeah. The thing with those events is like we never actually sat and talked to anybody. We kind of just like it's a weeknight or Sunday night. We're gonna yeah, it's tough. Show up, watch something cool, like great. Yeah, yeah this whole great setup. But then uh, everybody kind of left, and it was like, oh, it's tough, man. They should they should put the really good TV on Saturday night so that like people can get together. Yeah, and Friday night. Or, yeah, talk about it. I understand. Like we don't go out to clubs anymore at yeah our advanced ages. <laughs> So um, I know a little bit about you. The, the uh, audience obviously does not. Um, one thing I would just like to point out that is pretty obvious after everything you just said about that food is that you're an engineer. Yeah. Um, would you call yourself a mechanical engineer first? Um, which which kind of engineer would you yeah, classify yourself as? I usually say robotics. Robotics uh, engineer. My, my degree was mechanical with a concentration in aerospace. Um, 
which led me to drones, which led me to robotics, and I've been mm-hmm. doing robotics sort of ever since. Do you want to say what uh, the, the outfit you work with right now is, or you don't have to? Sure. No, I, um, I'm really proud of it. I, there's this studio in, here in San Diego called Basil Studio, and mm-hmm. they, they're design and fabrication studio, and they um, make some of the most beautiful restaurants in the world. Like they literally have winning restaurants. For I think they're unmatched in San Diego right now. Right? Oh, absolutely. They yeah, have like, turned San Diego into a restaurant city yeah. single-handedly. Just a brilliant team of, of designers and just incredible fabrication capability of woodworking and, and stuff like that. And the, the founder had this vision of after our, one of our last projects is just so mind-blowingly beautiful with his Italian marble and this um, these wooden blooms that reach from the floor to the ceiling and brass everywhere and just um, just this kick-ass concept of like these high-end bartenders and in tuxedo tops and then shorts and, and converse mm-hmm. and uh, just like a lot of tongue-in-cheek there's like portraits of Ja Rule and like uh, Biggie on the walls and then there's like a giant bandsaw they were like where, you know where do we go from here mm-hmm. and he had been percolating this idea to have these um interactive spaces and, and or not interactive per se, but living spaces that changed. And they, mm-hmm. they weren't just a static thing you look at and you go back five times a year and they're the same thing. Right. Um, so it's an evolution of he, a space. He hired a couple yeah. people to, to try to execute that vision. And, um, one of who was on the podcast already, Travis, uh, used to work for Basil, right? Travis was a, yeah, it was, um, fabricator. one of their yeah lead fabricators. He, he wasn't really there to, to, integrate technology. No, no, you're, you're the, uh, you're you're the brains. He's the, he's the guy throwing things together, but, uh, same company though. Same company. He's not there anymore, but he was there for a while, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's actually how I I got the job. The, the boss man came down and said, uh, Hey, I'm looking for somebody who can really lead this. And I had just, um, sort of shut down my, my third company. And, uh, and I was looking for something more creative after coming out of a really hardcore coding intellectual property drone technology play. Basically, I walked into this job interview and he and I he was like, oh, you know, I got these kind of ideas. And I was like, yeah, I can do this. He's like, no, 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 I, I get it. You can do this stuff. Like I've seen your resume. I looked you up. Like You can do this stuff. Like, let's just talk shop. And yeah, like him and I just hit it off and it's been amazing. So I'm running a new department of this company uh, that is integrating interactive technology with architecture and design. And it's just awesome. Like we're, we're doing this installation in in little Italy uh, where literally the entire facade is made up of these 24 motorized panels that uh, are about 14 feet tall and they fold up and out. Mm-hmm. So they sort of shoot out of the building by like seven feet and literally all day, the entire facade of this building is dancing. Like, ah, like your fingers it. sort of wiggling. I feel like little Italy as a whole neighborhood owes a lot to this company. What is it? Basil, basil studio, yeah. basil studios. I mean, it's gotta be six, seven, eight, nine, yeah. something like oh, that. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, the big ones. I mean, you got, and it's funny Ironside because every time I can always tell when I'm in one of them, even though I shut up, even though I don't know which ones they are, yeah, I, I'll be in a, I'm like, oh yeah, this is one of them. Like, yeah. It, yeah, it jumps yeah. out. In fact, I was in Point Loma the other day and uh, I was at uh, Soda and Swine out in Point Loma yeah. and I had no idea. And I was walking through it I, and I, I remarked to somebody, I'm like, oh, this seems like Basil Studios did this. Like, oh, they did. I'm like, yeah. oh, there you go. 
go. Yeah, there's just <laughs> a level of fit and right finish. It, and it was when I saw the, sophistication the table of the design. that was like uh, like 25 feet long and was a giant foosball table. Giant I'm foosball like, table. Yeah. yeah, this is probably. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. And they so that's the beauty of it is not they're not just typical architects who they get to draw out this design and then they hire a bunch of people to build it. They literally that foosball table they made from scratch. They yeah, ordered some no, wood. Yeah. They like. They ordered the little men and they made the steel rods that they went on. They made the handles and the top of it is this like sliding glass. Yeah. So you can, you know, slide the glass together, play foosball, slide it apart and actually sit there and eat. And, uh, and it's just like this whole amazing thing that they have all these capabilities in house. And it just, it really clicked that. Yeah. That, that was the opportunity that. So you, um, you know, when I met you, you were unemployed. Really? Yeah, you were in a you were in a moment of unemployment, hmm. and you felt a little listless at the time. Do you not remember that when, um, kind of at the beginning of the the Game of Thrones period, like you weren't really working anywhere full time, and you seemed like you had this intense creative energy that was like, and, and that, I, I think it's when you started cooking. Is it? Because I don't think that you had much mm. going on, and you're like, oh and yeah, you kind of okay. you kind of focused. Your little laser beam into food for a while, yeah. Um, because you had you yourself have been an entrepreneur for companies, right? Mm-hmm. And then it, it seems to me you've had you've jumped in and out of a few companies here and there, but you don't seem to love being an employee all the time. No, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I did corporate man, and that was just like I had it as well as you can have it as corporate. Yeah, that early I was running an R and D lab for them and. They said like they gave me a job like they they hired me you know so you know how corporate is they have they put in this requisition to start this position so that they could yeah. accomplish a certain task and they thought it would take you know twelve months and I show up and I do it all of it in a week because they don't realize how fucking easy this is and uh, so then they're like well what do you want to do for the rest of the year and I was like let me just like build shit and help you guys do better stuff and, yeah and um, and that was awesome. And, uh, and there was just, so I would just sit, you know, go around and they sent me off to these trainings and that was great. Learned Six Sigma and all this stuff. And did was, you learn Six did Sigma? I did. I am I'm so proud I'm of it. I'm actually very interested in Six Sigma. Yeah. I would, I, because it's kind of the corny old guy, like old corporate. It is. Like a, is. a, a motivational type thing. But I think it's really interesting. Like you should get learn the real engineering that's behind it because that's why I, really I actually would, I had I would, to learn the real engineering in school and that was so much more engaging and interesting. Other it's than, really about like, what would you say? Okay, this is my impression of what Six Sigma is about. It's about like taking doing a job and taking that to like another level of consciousness, like. Like some people do a job, but like yes. you do a job. You really do. Yeah. <laughs> you like do the shit out of that job. Absolutely. I mean, that's an ineloquent way of saying it, but like it is kind of like a way of taking all performance to some nth degree that you didn't understand before. Is that around the idea of it? Pretty much. Yeah. It's a system of tools to help you get to a six sigma level variance, which means about. I forget what the number is, four in a million parts are bad. Oh. So it's it's especially, you know, tuned for um tuned for mass production and things like that. But the Have you done landmark? No, it's a No. All right. Well, you have your Colts, I have my Colts. Oh, yeah. you know? No. Oh, I have my Colts. <laughs> one yeah, of these anyway. one of these conversations I'll find somebody who did, who did landmark and we'll go in a 
Is that a Mormon thing? No, it's not a Mormon thing. It's actually, I, I lovingly refer to it as Scientology light. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. So, um, yeah, the way that you talk about your current job is much different uh, than I heard you talk about employment in the past. Because when I met you, you were, you were I want to say jaded, but I would almost say maybe a little um, disillusioned, a little hurt oh, by some no, experiences. Let me, let me just tie up the, the loose ends on that corporate. So I, Please do. Yeah, so I, I basically had a, identified this, this thing where uh, we were making what was it? Uh, electromagnetic shielded windows for like aircraft, mm-hmm. uh, for military aircraft. So they had to meet all these military specs. And the way you do that is you're, you're basically building a Faraday cage. So if you surround something in metal, mm-hmm. it makes it really hard for radiation to get in and out or conductive material at least. So what they're doing is putting a conductive coating on this window and you need to connect that conductive coating electrically to the rest of the plane. So you have what's called a bus bar on the edge. A bus bar? Bus bar, yeah. And, um, a new Faraday cage. I don't Faraday know cage. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a simpler one. Um, so the, score. the cheap one is you just uh, you wrap some copper tape around it, but the the high end military stuff you have to like literally get this uh, liquefied silver. It's kind of uh, nanoparticles of silver mm-hmm. suspended in epoxy, uh, mixed with some gold and some you know some other other things. And you, salt around the room. You sp- yeah, exactly. You're just basically soldering it. You're spraying this coating on so that it connects that film to the other thing. So the thing is like, um, the way they did this is they got somebody who hadn't graduated high school to take this $10 air gun from Harbor Freight and just load in this liquid silver, liquefied silver, and just spray a huge, like just mast of it. Just like just a big wave of this stuff in the spray booth. And this stuff cost about $50 a gram and they would go through about I don't know, 500 grams a day. And they were only putting about 0.5 grams on the parts. So they're wasting like tens of thousands of dollars oh every week on this. Or more than that. It was it came out to be about one and a half to two million dollars a year, literally just because they were using a shitty air gun and they didn't have anybody who was trained in actually painting and they didn't have a process for this. So I said, like, well, let me just take this to the nth degree. Let me just make these things are literally just rectangles, they're flat rectangles. Make a little robot that just has this tiny little bead of a of a mm-hmm. sprayed pattern, and you just have the robot point at that corner yeah. and spray blah blah blah. And it was estimated to save you about pass butter. one one point two million dollars exactly <laughs> a year. Oh my! And God. I go into building this. Everybody's stoked. Like great, you know, because uh, anytime I can eliminate somebody's headcount, they were so happy, right? You just love getting people laid yeah. off. Oh, I got several people laid off, unfortunately. But <laughs> it's just their metrics. You know, these stupid corporate metrics were just like, how much money do we make per person that we employ? And when you're only at 20 people, you drop down by one, that metric skyrockets. Well, if you, <laughs> you if you, there are a lot of jobs out there where you're, the point of your job is to tie yourself into the process embody the entire process and see you know what's going wrong and it is funny how often in if when you do completely inject yourself into every step of a process how there is w- at least one step where there it's a high school kid spraying yeah, so right. <laughs> metaphorically in yeah. most jobs literally in yours yeah. but like process is funny because it's very ignored by the majority of of all companies it's it's one of the last things people get to and it's the, the the place where the most money is, and time. Oh, totally. And 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 honestly, the, probably the biggest loss is, is opportunity loss because bad process stops the evolution of companies and 
the evolution of products almost more than anything else. Yeah, be careful. I mean, there is a point. At, there's a point much sooner than I think a lot of people think where too much process and you're you're fucked. You can never grow as a company. You can never take advantage of a new opportunity. You can never because you are so your structure is only set up for solving the the problems you had envisioned. When a new opportunity that comes along that's outside of that yeah. vision, it makes it really hard to say, hey, we make restaurants, but somebody asked us to make a house. Can we, I'm obviously drawing on my work, current job here, but. Yeah, uh, true. No, no, I mean, it's a good point. My, my experience has been in finding where the, the journey from A to B is overly complicated and slowing things down mostly. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, like, especially if you're going corporate, uh, like bigger companies, more entrenched, more conservative with their outlook on things, more reticent to, to change things up, probably become festooned with horrific processes oh, all yeah. over the place oh, that absolutely. they did like more like uh, requisitioning a permission to hire yeah. somebody for a year. Albatrosses around the neck. Yeah, exactly. So Is it albatross eye? No, <laughs> decidedly not. But, uh, so anyway, what happened is I started building this robot and, just by chance, somebody from corporate would stop by and they asked me what I was working on. I tell them about this robot and uh, expecting to be like, yeah, sure, we make $5 billion a year, but you know, you're going to save us a million dollars. That's nice, right? Like, especially they're paying me like mm-hmm. pennies, right? Little did you know the Little the, did I know. The high school sprayer was the boss's kid. No, worse. <laughs> this guy was from the safety department and his job was to tell people no to their projects. Oh, yeah. And uh, because if anything does happen, it's it comes down on him. So I was like, you know, initially I'm like, sure, no, that's a totally reasonable thing. I'd like learning stuff. I get to learn something about this. So I, you know, I um, go through the regulations, and there's two fire codes you can um, that were relevant, and you only have to comply with one. So I say, oh look, this one has an exemption if you're using under a liter a day, which ended up being something like, you know. Five like hundred times as much as we were using or something something reasonable. I was like, great, you know, then um, you know, we're good according to fire code because there's just not literally enough material for it to actually combust. Um, and he goes, no, it's going to explode. Got to comply by the other fire code too. I'm like, all right, so we go in, go through that, and we go through this whole long process of getting it certified about ventilation of our system and all this stuff. Good, we're good. And he said, no, it's not good enough. So I get the city fire inspector comes in signs off on the plans not good enough you know county fire inspector state fire inspector federal fire inspector still not good enough and i was just like fuck it i quit like they were like can you just do one little project i did this one little project and then i what do you think was the impetus behind that was it they were trying was it they were literally trying to be that careful or was it they were just trying to shut down the project the impetus is i was a it was conveyed to me was that because my boss was actually on my side fighting for like, he's like, we don't, this department doesn't make that much money. Like we could really use saving a million dollars. The argument that kept coming back was we think it's going to explode and uh, it's going to cause a liability and we're responsible for how long ago was this? Oh, nine years, nine years. Okay. So from this point, if you like, dropped a, a lead curtain of objectivity over the whole thing and you looked at it from like a third party like what was what was happening there like what where was the disconnect was it on, on was it on their end solely was it on your end did you not like realize something about that company or industry at the time that now you see or 
I, I'm fishing a little bit here, obviously, but like it seems to me that there's a the way you're describing it to me, your idea sounds completely logical, and their idea sounds completely illogical. So where sure, is the yeah. how how did it miss so bad? Um, Are they just idiots? Is that where it is? That that's what my boss, my engineering boss, engineering manager, and my business unit manager and his boss all told me was that the safety department was being stupid, and but mostly they didn't care about a million dollars, right? Because they made five thousand times that every year. So just that was a week to week fluctuation. Like not taking a chance on something that. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. it. Was a built-in conservatism through, you know, through being a Fortune two hundred company like they. So. <clears throat> To go back to what I was originally talking about with you, which is that when you talked about this job now, it sounded different to me than what you used to talk about. Because when you just described your meeting with um, uh, the the boss at uh, uh, the Basil. New, at Basil, um, you have a whole different energy and, and attitude about it, and there seems to be a permissiveness about like him letting you kind of letting your imagination off the leash a little bit, uh, like, like getting some room to run around. And, and then this other place sounded very restrictive. Well, it wasn't, that was a thing. I mean, I, it wasn't, I, okay. I was even at, I got, I mean, I was again, had it as good as I could have it at corporate, right? Small branch, you know, with a moderate R and D budget that I was literally running the R and D department at, at 22, 21. And, uh, and that was great. And like I said, it was coming up with these projects, implementing them, saving a lot of money, made a lot of employees happy. Because I, one thing that was great about the Six Sigma is there's an obligation to go and talk to the people who are actually doing the task and asking them, uh, what do you think would make this job easier? Because they know better than anybody mm-hmm. what would make their job easier. And um, and it was just, it's a very rewarding thing when you you build something for them that they that had their idea, and then it works out really well, and it saves the company money. And, all the incentives are aligned and everything was great. So it was, it was really just, you know, I could have built that robot in a month, but I spent six hours, six, sorry, six months arguing with the safety department about just letting me build it. Like, I mean, we got to this point where I pitched them the idea of if I put the robot in another room from the combustibles and I just had little strings running to the, yeah. the spray booth and they were so excited. They're like, yeah, if you can just put strings to go from the other room to this room, then it won't explode. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? I'm not doing that. I'm not making a puppet robot. Like, <laughs> like just let me put this shit right next to each other. I don't so know. You, you, there was an oversight committee, yeah. and you wanted less regulations. Yeah, yeah. You were the Republican <laughs> of that job. I'm teasing Tyler because he and I uh, were, were talking about politics earlier, and we decided not to get into it tonight. But uh, Tyler, describe to me your political standing. How, how would you describe where you, where you fall on the Oof. spectrum? Or the, um, the, I don't know what you want to call it. Labels are for losers, man. Um, I am a pretty far left progressive. I spent a lot of my time with a bunch of anarcho-socialists. Um, so I lean that direction, but I'm not, I haven't bought into the anarchism yet. Anarchy is a funny yeah. concept. I mean, I was definitely, I was a big punk rocker uh, when I was young. And the idea of anarchy really appealed to me. Um, and I'm sure there's books that give a really good uh, justification for anarchy. But from what I have gleaned as I've grown up <laughs> is that chaos and anarchy tend to lead to a lot of um, violence and misery. Um, 
That's that's just that's speculation. I, 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 no, you don't no, know. Not completely. <laughs> not completely. I did live in Siberia. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I I I haven't seen anything, you know. And maybe if this podcast gets out to some people who want to send me some anarchist literature, maybe if you want me to send too. me some anarchist, oh, anarchist please. literature, oh, no, I would I, read it. Other way, I want But I do believe. Understand more. I do believe uh, anarchy. I don't know. I just don't see. I don't see. I don't see how it connects with the ideals that most people ascribe to it. You know, like people ascribe equality and um, egalitarianism to I will, anarchy. I will tell you the closest that I got to it. So uh-huh. over, over the winter break, my, um, my dad and my stepmom, my little sister, came and visited and stayed with me. I took them down to Baja, and we went to one of these museums. And, um, we're those kind of people. And it was a Catholic mission turned into a museum. And you can tell that it was a Catholic mission turned into a museum by the Catholic mission mm-hmm. because the story they tell about the history of Baja California is there were a bunch of savages and they were doing awful stuff and we sent over all these conquistadors to convert them to Catholicism. And, uh, and they Who don't were the inhabitants of Baja California at that time? Just a bunch of indigenous Indigenous peoples, similar to our Native Americans and Native North Americans, and, and things they like that. Uh, so they were, were, were living they of Mayan uh, descent. Is that that north, or is that further south? Oh, I, I can't speak to exactly that. I know the there's Anasazi, and there mm-hmm. you know a number of tribes. I don't, I don't think the Mayan Empire. This def- is definitely pre, not. Is this pre-Spanish um, uh, invasion? This uh, is this is the time of the Spanish invasion. Okay, this, this is and the Spanish describing. invasion we're talking. So basically, about. you have a whole series of of tribes who are incredibly peaceful, very in touch with nature. They have no sense of ownership of the land, and they're not they're not filthy capitalists, and they're mm-hmm. they're um, they're uh, you know they're living to me what would be an amazing you know human life. Yeah. And then you have these Catholic capitalists who, because they've acquired all this wealth, they can build these boats to ship around the world with you know soldiers, and they come and rape and kill and enslave all these people, and then they get to write the history of like we saved all of their souls. I mean, mm-hmm. except for the ones that got murdered and, and enslaved, and but, raped. Uh, oh, and unraped. I mean, they could still save their souls. I mean, you know, maybe that's part of their process. You know, process is yeah. an iffy thing. The museum is showing all these beautiful ships that the Spanish sailed mm-hmm. over on. And, and there was just like a some basic pictures of like, look how, and they had these artifacts of like, look how primitive they were and we really helped them out. And it's just like these stories of Native Americans living with these animals and, mm-hmm. and like really appreciating them for their hides and using every bit and um, all the things we should get back to. And that, to me, is a sense of anarchy. That, that is a sense of mm-hmm. we don't need a government because we are just going to live in small tribes and live off the land and live with nature. And, Although uh, small tribes had very strict governments, like very sure, yeah. like the craziest like, yeah. government. You know, it's funny. Um, Dictatorship. We were talking about uh, this book. I, I'm talking. I was telling you about this book I was reading right now, Sapiens. And um, one of the chapters I love, I love the title of it. They call it The Agricultural Revolution, The Big Scam. <laughs> <laughs> and they talk about how much happier hunter-gatherers were than the first not even the first, maybe all people post agricultural revolution because pre agricultural revolution, a human worked 30 to 40 hours, maybe a week, maybe 20, maybe 10, depending on the week. 
Um, their diet was amazing. It was completely varied and, and, and consisted of all kinds of things. And they had this amazing like spectrum of you know, proteins and, and vitamins that they were taking in. We were meant to be hunter-gatherers. And then the agricultural revolution happened and farming started. There's an evolutionary benefit to, to farming. And then there's a uh, kind of a cognitive benefit to it. The evolutionary benefit to it is we could have way more babies. Like, way more babies farming. Um, didn't mean a bunch of them weren't going to starve to death or, like, die horrible deaths. But you could sustain bigger and bigger and bigger populations. The cognitive part of it was you could introduce new um, luxuries to life. And we started going through a luxury cycle where a luxury would be introduced, and then it would become mundane, and then it would become necessary. And we have not broken that cycle. Definitely have not broken that ever yeah. since. Since and it's funny to think of it since the agricultural revolution. Yeah. And if we could revert back to hunter gatherism, we'd probably be a lot happier. Oh yeah, there would be way less of us. <laughs> Absolutely. And 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 the and the earth wouldn't be feeling our our thumbprint so hard. You know, For because sure. yeah. as as we uh, moved into agriculturalism, we immediately started affecting our, the environment in hu- bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger ways. I, I guess the whole point of this is like, I look at, I look back at like these native cultures as like, yes, they were hunter gatherers and yeah, they were happier and purer and better, like in, in some ways, but humanity just did not decide to go that way. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> that, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, the, the indigenous peoples of North America and, you know, got away with it for a lot longer than from the, uh, yeah. cradle of life over there. Uh, tell, do you want to talk about sociopathy or, or should we move past that? No, absolutely. I mean, it's something I'm still, I wasn't literally a sociopath because the current medical understanding of sociopathy is that it's incurable, but incurable, but interestingly not, um, necessarily from birth you can develop it and then not be able to cure it but anyway i basically was a child of a pretty broken home a single mother was a very abusive and um your mother was abusive yeah emotionally physically and your dad was out of the picture my dad yeah went through a deep depression for most of my childhood and and was he tried to be there as much as he could, and, and he did a lot of uh, good things for me. But he, you know, he just wasn't wasn't entirely there. Um, and we moved around a lot, which led to the cycle of I'd make all these friends, and then we'd um, move, and I'd lose all those friends, and nobody ever communicated why we're moving, when we're moving, anything like this. So I, I was in five schools in, in three years, and I was in four homes in, in two years, and um, just this big cycle of loss. And it made it really hard for me to connect with people and things like that. And I became very um, just repressed all feeling for a long time until yeah. until I was about 20. So I lived, you know, what, all what, of my What time did years. you start moving around? Like, how old were you when you were moving around? About eight was the eight. first one that I lost everybody, yeah. Oh, oh wow. it, So it was, it was before that even. I was, you know, in this school, and then they knew we were moving, so they put me into a public school so they didn't have to pay the, the Catholic school tuition. Mm. And they my mother, and then... um. So that was this, this big transition going from, you know, from proper school to, you know, with 
good social time to this, you know, the shitty suburb public school. And, um, and then, yeah, just kind of snowballed from there. And I didn't really get to rediscover feelings until I was close to 21. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was this huge thing. And it, you know, during those, those, you know, what, however many years was like, you can imagine that pretty much only your intellectual brain is left, right? Sort of the Sherlock Holmes version of, of thing. You, you know, it's incredibly good at school. I had a really great creative sense of creativity. Um, but there was just a lack of emotional depth and connection with human beings and human nature. Can, can I, can I say something that you said to me off mic? Um, we were talking about, uh, ADHD and brain fog and mm. you said something that really struck me interesting because it's very different from my experience. You said throughout all of school, I had this very intense brain fog, but I still got like straight A's. I got accepted to MIT. Like mm. you were, you were fulfilling all of the, like the requirements of school, like the criteria of like, like advancing in that system. And at the same time, you felt like you were living in a fog. Well, so I didn't know I was living in a fog. You didn't so know you were I living thought in a that's fog. how everybody felt. You thought that was everybody felt. Yeah. But in retrospect, you see that as a fog. What the, the reason I say is because like I, I, I myself have some ADD, ADHD, whatevers, however you want to classify them. Sure. And I, I also have this brain fog memory, but to me, it was the thing that stopped me from being able to, to like turn homework in. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't make society work for me because of my fog. But for you, your fog almost... I'm not saying I was a good student. I'm just saying I was so smart that if I didn't do the homework, I could still show up and get A's. And I was in a broken school system where homework's only 8% of your grade, so okay. you can still get an A. Um, so I was, you know, I was getting A's strictly because I was just acing these tests without studying and things like that. So you don't feel like this fog that you were in was somehow um, advancing you in a, in a way or, or, or maybe making you focus on things in a way for you. It was just the, the situation you were in was, uh, easy, like conducive to, to, to the, where you were at. I haven't really processed how the, the, the brain fog actually, um, affected that whole thing other than it definitely contributes to, uh, the way I describe it is you try to reach for a thought. You try to, to process some some difficult logical thing and it you just kind of can't necessarily reach it. Some you know, I can I was able to at times, you know, so say a few hours after lunch, the brain you know, sorry, after breakfast, so that it's a gluten intolerance induced thing. And uh, it's a very repeatable I can go eat a, a piece of of wheat bread and I would get sick for the next four hours and I, I know the exact pattern that happens every time. Um, so there are times where I, maybe I didn't have breakfast that wasn't laced with gluten and I could have this really good morning and I could think really deeply and things like that. Um, but then, you know, lunch would come and, you know, to have school pizza, you'd have school lasagna or whatever it is. And, uh, then it, it would onset. But, um, what really happens was something emotional would happen to me and I would not be able to process it. I'd have no control over my emotions or anything like that. Um, so all that would ever come out was this anger and repression. And I'd, I would just keep everything down and I would just keep, and I'd, maybe I let anger out and that's it. And that's not a good way for making friends, especially mm -hmm. after, you know, you're the new kid and 
you've just been suspended. I got suspended so many times. But luckily, my school didn't keep records of of suspensions, so college applications get a lot easier. Did you find yourself being a loner a lot? Like, uh... Yeah, yeah. I sort of knew everybody, and I was on okay terms with everybody, but nobody would like invite me to a party or anything mm-hmm. like that. And uh, so, they, you know, that's they it was great because I got podcasts. not great, but it was I uh, I describe it as being raised by the Internet. It was like it was like I fell into 4chan in the early days and it was bad. I mean, it was such bad stuff. Really? So many people get murdered. I watched so How much bad stuff. I just turned 28. 28. Um, OK, so you are you're 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 a decade behind me. OK, uh, just yeah. I forget that. Sometimes I think you're my age. You you got a you got a yeah. I was at the old, old soul. Um, and I have an immature air. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, you do. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, no, I, I envy it. So you gotta fighting it. But um. But yeah, so I kind of you know like my dad was sort of in this deep depression, and he really wasn't there to teach me how to ride a bike to all this stuff. I learned so much stuff from the internet, and I was one of the you know for first generations to do that. Except, you know, the, the things where that you're just going to thrive on anger is 4chan. So when I see, you know, what's happening in the world today, it's like, I totally understand this. You were there. In a deep sense, I understand what's happening in these conservatives' minds about what, these conspiracy what, theories uh, and things like that. What, so what years were you on 4chan? Like, when was, when was your 4chan time? Uh, maybe 2001 to 2008 or so. What was so the... So full-on betard, too. Like, what was the... Like, because... I didn't do fortune. I never like I I have seen it and stuff, but like I was never on there. But I know people who were on there have this like emotional, like there was this emotional note that was hit for them at mm. that time. How, what kept you on there? What was it that made you love fortune? Oh, love is not the word. Or right, what, what, what a... kept you coming back? <laughs> Gosh. So when you're that detached from reality, there's. And, you know, they have this culture of camaraderie of somebody posts and you just fuck with them as hard as you can. And yeah. everybody's doing it. And that's the game. And everybody knows the game. And there's nothing off limits. And you're like, yeah, this makes sense, right? That's simple, that there's no rules. And you just do whatever you feel like. And everything's just stream of consciousness, vile. And um, and it, and you're just going back for the, the you know, a, what we call clickbait now. It's just, a, you know you click that next page to see the images or you click refresh to see what just got posted. And it's some snuff video and there's some, you know, war video of like soldiers getting murdered. And was there anything positive that it did for you? Or was it all negative? Um, positive that directly? No. I mean, indirectly, I've learned a lot from that experience, uh, about myself, about other people and seeing things from some pretty dark perspectives. But, uh, so yeah, so the way I came out of that, that what I you know, tongue in cheek, refer to as sociopathy was um, studying again, just being one hundred percent intellectual. That's how I, I thought of myself. Was you know I, I have zero aspects to my humanity except for this intellectual self, and all I care about is how smart everybody is because that's the only aspect to me there is. Um, way I came out of that was by applying this intellectualism to ethics. So I started studying philosophy of ethics and things like that. And you get into it. Uh, Aristotle was one of the first philosophers to have a treatment of the emotions from an ethical point of view. He was the first to say, you cannot be a good person unless you have the right emotions at the right time for the right reason. 
So if you kick a dog, you shouldn't feel good. It is actually wrong to feel uh, a certain way. It, and that was, and that's when I made a conscious effort to start feeling things, to start um, saying, I'm in this situation. I hurt somebody. How am I supposed to feel? And I had to intellectualize what I'm supposed to feel, why I'm supposed to feel it, and then try to practice feeling that mm. until it became more of a, um, a more intuitive thing that these emotions would arise on their own. And that has taught me so much about emotions in a, in a very intellectual way. Uh, <laughs> and it's been such a weird last seven, eight years that it's just like learning about emotions in this very different way than everybody else did. Huh. That is fascinating. Uh, my favorite sentence maybe of this whole conversation tonight is it taught me about emotions in an intellectual way. <laughs> yeah. That does describe you in a, in a, in a, a really interesting way because <clears throat> you do have, um, like you do have this kind of bleeding heart feel about you. Oh, but, do I? That's well. I take that as a compliment. In, in a in a big way, but in any specific way that I know you, you're actually very mechanical and meticulous. And but in your general sense of being. Mm. Um, yeah, you're a romantic in, in a strange way. And, mm. and you, like you have a lot of like really emotional based qualities to your character, but interactions with you are incredibly like right angle. Cerebral. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the word I get from multiple people is cerebral. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think you leverage certain things. I think you leverage, um, philosophy. I think you leverage psychedelics. Mm. And I think you leverage, um, t- uh, like what I would call maybe like transhumanism or like future thought Absolutely, yeah. or something to draw you out of the left brain and force yourself to make contributions to emotional and like kind of mirror neuron, uh, em- 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 empathetic, like, um, uh, 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 themes that are bigger than you. Mm. But like on a like, like the 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 dinner you brought over tonight is incredibly specific mm. and meticulous. It is, yeah. Yeah, but the fact that you brought it over is 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 very like it like warms my heart. Isn't that? It's so great that it, but, cooking worked out like that. Yeah. But the specifics are like very mechanical. <laughs> they are a and, bit. But, yeah. but it's a wonderful. It, I, I I'm trying to pay you a very complicated compliment right now. No, but I, it, it's, it's a wonderful. Kind of, right? It's a wonderful combination of two two sides of a thing, and it's I think it's something that has attracted me to your general like energy since I met you. Mm. Is this weird dichotomy? between left brain, right brain, uh, specific, general, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm dancing around a, a point at this point. No, I'd, well, I, I certainly feel that because I, I feel that's a, that's a pretty solid understanding of, of me. I didn't realize I was um, maybe not transparent, but not, not so opaque. But, uh, well, I've seen you in, I've seen you in uh, a, a, a variety of contexts over like two true. years. Yeah, that's you know? true. Um, and <laughs> this is something funny. I wasn't going to bring this up. But you and I have both at different times under different under the influence of different drugs 
said to one another something about this, something like this. You know, I get that we aren't really like on the same page, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I kind of like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I said it to you a long time ago, one time when I was really drunk. Yeah, and when I we can't were, believe you remember that. When we were camping and yeah. you were on mushrooms, you said it to me. Oh, yeah. What was it? Like 2 a.m. And I was just like, you know, like, I know you that know, we don't really click that we much. We don't click. <laughs> and it, it's, those moments both stand out to me like as kind of these like little lightning rods. It's like, this is a person who I can think around. <laughs> yeah. 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 I hope you do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and um, if we don't jive completely, like energetically from start to finish, that's going to be a okay because we're going to, we're going to meet on a lot of different levels. Yeah. 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 I like Actually that. a lot of that arose from, I would invite you to places and then I would also invite my best friend, Kevin, and then you would spend a lot of time with Kevin and not with me. And I was like, not nah. oh, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, I get it. I love Kevin. Like Kevin's amazing. Well, Kevin's, Kevin's like, a nice guy. Yeah. He's such a nice guy. He's you raised know, by a bunch of women and there's women. He was the only guy in the house fox. and he's just a bleeding heart, like deeply feels everything. Yeah. Like beta. Uh, Kevin's great. Yeah. I'll definitely get Kevin on this, on this podcast too. But uh, yeah, you and I are, we're prickly in our yeah. own ways. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I actually don't mind being prickly, like at this point. It, it, it's been a bummer a, a few places in my life, but I'm okay being prickly now. Mm. Like, because it does mean people that do get close oh, absolutely. are yeah. able to maneuver pricks <laughs> absolutely I, my that, my that only gripe that, right that now that got very gay sounding for a second maneuvering of pricks and whatnot yeah nothing against that you got something against that way uh yeah. no my only gripe is that you know as i move into a more artistic part of my you know life journey here is um the artists that i want to work with tend to be fully abandoned left brain and i just wish i could you know i love this surrealism i love this mm-hmm. You know, this um, and working with other artists, uh, collaboration has been very hard because there is a lot of of emotion tied up with creating this art. And um, yeah, and it's not doesn't serve me at that time to be prickly, but it's certainly true. You know, one of the things that makes me happiest about talking to you and especially about this basal position that you have now is that I feel that you are in a position where your gifts are being utilized. Mm. And um, I feel like the, the, the saddest points in my life were the times where the things that I had to offer weren't being used. Mm. And the best times of my life were the times when they were. And I feel like when I met you, just in that specific moment, and I, I feel like I met you between two things. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Um, you weren't being utilized, and now you are. And you seem, I, 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 I hesitate to use the word happy because happy is a weird word, but you it seem is. fulfilled right now. I, I am in a pretty good spot overall. Um, I would say about that one point, so we were talking about st- stories before, and in a sense that all stories are a form of fiction. And uh, especially the stories we craft about ourselves, you meet somebody at a party and you tell them your life story and it's a canned thing. Um, that you probably don't actually believe, but, um, but that point in my life, I had just, you know, my, um, 
company had basically just tanked. You know, I had turned down tons of investment because it, it was just unfavorable terms, and I tried to do self-funding, and it, it was just going really badly, and I had um, taken on too much consulting work, and I was in this really toxic relationship. And then... Um, and I had developed like a full-on anxiety disorder, and I had deeper depressive episodes than I never had. Yeah, I don't know. It was um, utilization. Maybe wasn't on my mind. I hadn't felt as fulfilled as I do now, probably ever. Yeah, which is, um, and that's that's sort of an okay thing when you've never sort of tasted what it's like. You know, it's, it's sort of to me to go back to. Or not go back to, but if I were to take a job at Qualcomm or something like that, like oof. I interviewed at Qualcomm oh, recently. You are you're living the corporate life right now. I'm uh, I'm impressed. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's another level. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's like getting invited into the middle of the Borg, the square. Yeah, right. I mean, like Qualcomm. Jesus Christ. You, I mean, if you want to. <laughs> If you want to drill down into the center of the human microchip, <laughs> if I could qualify it as something, wow, that it was overwhelming to me. Mm. I, I I interviewed at Sony and Qualcomm recently. Sony wasn't as bad. There was aspects of it to it, but it sure. was it was much broader, uh, a lot more like. I don't know, humanity. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel like as a company, they have a lot more heart than, than Qualcomm. <laughs> you get drawn into the inner inner workings of Qualcomm. It is, it's crazy. You meet people in Qualcomm who seem like programs. <laughs> like, they seem like a program. There's got to be some cartoon or movie. Oh, The Matrix, I prob- I guess probably. Sure, yeah. Where, where Mr. people Anderson. are programs. It, 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 like, everybody, you like... Anytime you meet any upper management in Qualcomm, yeah. you, you could, oh, you're the program that does this. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then all of the people that are below are just, the, they're in a meat grinder. Yeah. Yeah, and they if are. You, if you can make it out of the meat grinder, then you get to be a program. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and being really mean to Qualcomm. I actually probably would have had, a, I probably would have learned a lot. Never getting that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And you know what? It was rightly so. There was there was a moment like I, I had four interviews at the place, and there was a moment in the fourth interview where the guy looked at me and he was like, "You gonna do this?" And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and he's like, "No, you're not." Oh my god! <laughs> it, it was a real like oh eye god. to eye. And, and he what a good to, guy! What a good guy! He, he saved to, you. Man. He wasn't trying to help me, and he wasn't trying to hurt me. Oh, he was man. just literally. It was one of the most honest questions. That is. That's and he was what just I mean. Like, Are you going to do this? And I was like, uh huh. And he's like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> That's the best interview question. I need to write yeah. that down, man. I've had some oh, great. Man. Have you applied to a lot of jobs in your life? No. I've no? keep starting companies and doing consulting. And... Keep starting companies. Oh, I'm just a natural born leader. Oh, and my God. works out. Just visionary and <laughs> yeah. accomplished. That's great. Well, the rest of us have to keep pitching our <laughs> keep pitching our sorry asses to people. Oh man! And I've been turned down, man. You I've picked comedian. Down. This is what happens when you start out with emotions. You like start studying like 
I don't know, creative writing or something like that. And then so, you're like, where do I go with funny. a okay, capitalist so society? Getting back to what we started on, you were, you were talking about this period in your life where you felt you had no emotional response to things. Yeah, yeah. So I am like my empathetic nature is my greatest gift and my greatest weakness. It has made me and ruined me to whatever degree I am made. And Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my empathetic nature has really been a problem like forever. I hear this I am, from I'm, so I'm, many good people. Like the I, good people are the ones who are like so empathetic that things just get fucked. I'm one of the men who, um, I've never been able to stop myself from crying. Ooh. Like even as a 40 year old man, I cry on a regular <laughs> basis and not just cry like at movies and commercials. I cry in situations where you don't want to cry. Aww. Like, normal day-to-day <laughs> things will like hit me in a way and I will cry and I have to like retreat to my car. No, no, you were telling me a story about yeah. you were uh, mentoring an um, employee who's under your management and there was a moment where I thought he could go either way on this. He could actually have that conversa- hard conversation he had to have with that guy would actually deeply affect him or he'd be able to dissociate because I had this ability now where I can do something deeply emotional and then just dissociate and it's a awful it's an awful ability but i as soon as you said that it it hit you and it stuck with you for part of the day and i was like okay i have i have a deeper sense of what you're like (laughs) you know what it is is um at some point you realize that um things affect you emotionally and you just stop accounting for that Hmm. you go i am going to be affected emotionally by this i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna bring that into the decision process of whether or not I'm going to do it. Because if it's a good idea, I'll do it. If it's a bad idea, I won't do it. Hmm. The fact that it's going to emotionally uh, affect me is a given. Wow. (laughs) And in fact, this is news to me. All right. No, I'm either way I go, it will probably emotionally affect me. If I don't do it, it'll emotionally affect me in one way. And if I do do it, it'll emotionally affect me another way. And I was telling you about, I ripped into a, 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 somebody who I'm managing recently and the experience was really rocking for me. Like I, I had to deal with it a lot and I don't regret it. I'm not going to apologize or anything because it was the right thing to do. I needed to tell that person something at that level of emotional communication, but I have had to deal with, what it did to me. Afterwards. So, so tell me, go through the the practice that I had to go through. Aristotelian ethics. What is the right feeling at the right time for the right reason in that situation? What What do you think would have been the right thing to feel as you were doing that? So and and after. I, so I truly point. believe this from where I'm standing right now, which I believe is mildly objective as as much as anybody can be. Mm-hmm. I believe that my motivation for really laying into this kid was at least as much as I can, as much as I can describe, uh, um, trying to help him, like trying to make his life better. Now it is true (laughs) that my mom pointed this out to me that he does remind me of me 10 years ago. And I am very frustrated with him because (laughs) he reminds me of me 10 years ago. And there was an aspect of me trying to tell myself 10 years ago. Sure to learn how to finish a project and learn how to take responsibility and like some stuff that a 30 year old should know. Sure. 
how to do, you know? So you got the right reason. What, what, well, what were the right? Maybe, maybe it's not the perfect right reason. Maybe, maybe it's a good reason. Maybe That's it was a... too much about myself, like transposed, like projected on somebody else. But it is not the the the, the overall objective of the thing is to bring happiness and more fulfillment and less suffering. Oh, I got, I got you. Either to him or to me. You got to intellectualize <laughs> this feeling for me, though. What should you have felt good? Should you have felt bad? Should you have felt guilty? Well, I There's felt, a whole type I of definitely felt there. bad afterwards. What should you have felt good? The intellectualize this for me. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't judge myself for feeling bad because I, I laid into the guy. Like I, I elevated things outside of what is normal in an office setting. Which, by the way, emotion in an office setting is a very, very interesting science. Absolutely. Like, and it's one that I'm just in my late 30s <laughs> finally getting. You're not supposed to be that emotional. In <laughs> and if you're going to elevate past normal emotion in an office, you have to have a good reason for it. Otherwise, you will not be in that office very long. Yeah. Like, that's maybe a, maybe a lesson a lot of people need to learn. But it's one that I've had to learn. Um, and so getting really emotionally like uh, em- emphatic with this guy. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I stepped outside of the bounds of what was maybe a normal office conversation. And I, but I hope I made a difference. I hope. I probably didn't. <laughs> Just in the way that things go. But I tried. I tried to make a difference in the way that this guy's life was going. I hear you. No, for sure. I I don't Just, I don't think I you saw, did anything wrong. Pattern, I'm not yeah. I'm not I'm not judging your action is good or bad. I am I am trying to convey um you know, a situation like that is emotionally fraught and I I to my opinion, I think yes, you should feel bad for being so hard on this guy and you're going to evoke some really painful stuff for him to in order with a very good-hearted goal. And uh, I think afterwards you should uh, you should probably let it that bad feeling go more quickly than if you had just hurt him out of anger or hurt him, you know, for some for some other reason. I agree. Yeah. So th- I, I'm saying that intellectualization of it is there is a there is a, a pattern that is ethically right to follow, and, and ethically in the sense of if you do a bunch of ethical things, you are a good, happy, fulfilled, contented person. Um, or whatever your, your idea of, you know, eudaimonia is. Um, and I, you know, that's a, it was an interesting thing to go through that, um, process every day of every action I was doing of like, what, what should I have felt there? Like, what do other people feel there? What is, what is the agreed upon, um, thing, right? There's how long should I feel guilty for have done that, you know, for doing that. Right. And that you get into like these Seinfeldian jokes of like, <laughs> But how long's too long to, to call or how long's too, you know, but can I feel bad for that for the rest of my life? Or, you know, is it, that was the strength of Seinfeld. That is, that, that's the metaphysical strength of Seinfeld is that it was, a, it was a show about people not being sure what everybody else felt. Exactly. Which oh is, my gosh. which is a, an amazing, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's so brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is. It's, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if I if I was gonna paint myself with a hero brush, which I'm gonna allow myself you should. to do for a you second, should. Um, I made myself feel bad 
by doing something that's going to help this person. No, it is very selfless. It, like it took it took a little bit out of me to do that. The the non selfish part of it, it was like I was I was in an agitated mood that day. I was at a high energy. I probably had a lot of caffeine, maybe an an Adderall little, or two, little or touch, something. touch or something else. And uh, I was probably in a very like high vibrational state at that moment. And what happened was <laughs> this guy and my boss started fighting in front of me. And I stepped in and I shut them both down. Mm. And I sent my my boss out of the room and then laid into this kid. So I both got to lord, yeah, lord over right. my own management oh my and then establish my... I mean, so there is definitely a shadow side to the... Yeah. And I don't want to walk away from that you oh know. for sure yeah. no take it as a whole experience obviously yeah. don't don't uh don't whitewash it but but um yeah so I mean, let's get back to you being a, a serial killer yes and a please. sociopath yes reformed hopefully okay i don't yeah i don't know if you can do that can you reform being a sociopath not <laughs> not for real sociopathy but yeah I mean, <laughs> here's hoping so are you are you uh currently murdering people Mm, not that I would admit to, but you know, we can go off mic again. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you, you were telling me off mic that you have planned murders. I have planned many perfect crimes. Um, lots of murder. How would you dispose of a body? You know, it depends on the type of body. You know, it depends on my locale. You know, these days I'm out, I'm out in, you know, San Diego. So we've got a very unfortunate situations in the to desert. Me there's, there's, there's two answers. Yeah. There's, Dissolve in chemicals, or there Chopo. is chop up, put in a, a bag, and drop in the ocean. Oh, see, you're hiding it though, right? The best ones are the oh, ones you, that are easily explained like a, and never found, right? So if I you put a body out in the desert, it. you put a body out in the desert with an empty jug of water that's been picked clean by vultures. Who's going to look very far into that, right? We are in this particular oh, point. So of, you're about setting people up as an accident. Sure. That's ah. a that's a you there's no suspicion if it's already ruled as a That's the go to as huh? a yeah, accidental death. Um I yeah, you know, that's it's interesting. Terrible. It's interesting you think that's the go to because I would actually say most murderers would think that the go to would be no one finds the body. Covered up, yeah, absolutely. But you're 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 going a different direction on that. Find the body, but understand the system, no, work within the system. No fingerprints. You know. Right. Yeah, you uh, book somewhere on the shelf. I, I, I ordered this uh, book. Um, it, it's for writers and it's all about like police and a uh, detective and um, like all of these procedures so that you can put it into your scripts. Mm. But when I got it, I was like, Oh, this is a manual on how to yeah. kill people. <laughs> this is great. Isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that the police manuals have lately have been leaked. And I, I mean, if you get really into it, like there's, you can just look at the budgets for police you know, and, and also their, their workload, right? You see these border states that um, they're just totally overworked. I think American police are a miracle of the modern world. With problems, with breakdowns, but there is not a society in which we get to operate like we do, and a lot of that is due to our police force. Wow. Yeah. We are on different pages right now. We there. are. I just felt that divide. I don't disagree in the cities, right? Up. I don't disagree when you've got a million people in a couple square miles, right? But 
Let's get back to our anarchy conversation. Was our anarchy conversation on mic or not? Half of it was, yeah. Okay. Because, man, anarchy just ends up with a lot of people getting raped. But you are, again, you're comparing having no police versus having the current police. I'm saying the Mm -hmm. current police were formed as slave catchers, right? I'm comparing our current police to a lot of other current police that are happening which are also formed in the similar basis of these militant people who are there to enforce the current power structures right so they're okay point you look at scandinavian police are like hey dude like don't do that and you know i I don't actually know that much about scandinavian police but they're they're not (laughs) running around san diego we our police have a fleet of tanks Uh that we bought at yes. secondhand military auctions. And I don't I don't disagree with you that the current state of a lot of police stuff is ridiculous and a lot of it I mean terrorism and that whole narrative was very complicating to American life in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and played out in a lot of weird ways. I feel like a lot of that's normalizing now. Yeah. Um 9/11 sent us for a loop. <laughs> and a lot of uh I don't know. Danders got up. Sure. Um, I think when you look now, I think incarceration is a different thing. Sure. Connected, but it's different. obviously yeah. connected. Yeah. And 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 I'm not I'm not trying to like come out as an, a police apologist or anything, but I will say this about the current climate in America: it is incredibly permissive to expression. I know very few people who have been thrown in jail for saying what they want to say. Not none, not yeah. zero, sure. but for a civilization, doing pretty good. And also, I think... But that, there's, okay, thrown in jail is different than being suppressed. Okay. Right? I also think but that yeah. there are less... I, I think there's less police violence and less police murders by our police than... And, and there are a lot. Mm-hmm. I think there was 900. And in fact, I think I know the number. I think there was 970 people murdered or killed by police in 2017. 17 and about 1,200, 1,100 to 1,218. That, that is including armed and unarmed. Okay. Yeah. And you know what? You you could challenge me on some stats on that, and I, no, I would have a, to acquiesce, right? few people I, every I've day. I've actually yeah. been looking into death stats a lot recently. Um, I know 17,000 people were killed in America in 2017, uh, and I know a lot of the breakdowns of it, and 17,000 people is a lot of people to be killed. Sure. I know, what's the number? Shit. Oh, it's something, uh, I think it's 95,000 people killed themselves. Yeah. <laughs> versus nine. the 17,000 who got killed. Agreed. That's something to point out. Oh, no. <laughs> we are so much more like, that's, I, I, I'm switching channels there for a second but um i mean that's that's just capitalism i mean you know seventeen thousand people uh, these luxury cycles what's what's the um thirty five thousand i think oh i'm gonna get called out now killed by vending machines no uh uh, automobile accidents uh, 35 yeah in america Uh, worldwide it's way bigger it's no but 35 relative to would you say nine for suicide no, 95. 95 for suicide? Really? That's... Suicide's two. Suicide's number second. Oh, you know no, what? I should stop. I thought we were talking about heart disease, and you've got, it's, you've it's, got opium it's... addiction, opioid addictions, and you've got... All right, maybe top five. 
Yeah. It's it's opioid, cancer, heart disease, suicide, and automobile. Uh, yeah. But suicide. Uh, you know what? Suicide's number two for young people. Uh, Nineteen ah, does something, something. That right, makes more right? sense. We're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like maybe overall, it's not it's like uh, thirty-nine number two, but it, it it's top. It's a million people globally a year. This is all just us bullshitting numbers at each other. So it's we can. Well, I, I'm <laughs> as a even, caveat to the listeners, I, I'm not even. Uh, we are I'm not even trying to prove a point anymore. We're getting just, at a general sense of suicide truth. is so prevalent, man. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. I, what how many of those were, were framed on, uh, framed by the cops? <laughs> probably, but probably. How many of them were framed no. by me? What's your thoughts about suicide? Like when you hear, when you hear about somebody you know who's committed suicide. Like um, I, I just six months ago, a, a comedian that I know in New York uh, committed suicide. Oh, really man. funny guy. I'm sorry. And. Um, I don't know. What do you think when somebody commits suicide? What, what, what's your reaction to that? So the one that really hit me hard was Anthony Bourdain. Um, that was a crazy suicide. That was a it? bad one. I have that some fears about it. Um, it's the lizard people, but no, not it was, lizard people. It was the though. cops. Just kidding. Um, I guess I get it. I mean, I. That's the hardest part for me is that I was in such a dark place for such a long time. And I still get really deep depressive episodes. And um, fortunately, they're only about down to like one a year or something. But when they happen, like I just totally get it. I just yeah. totally, you are in such a painful position that it feels like the only way out is that. And it's, um, if you know, if you're thinking of this kind of stuff, like absolutely reach out to anybody, reach out to me. I will be there for you. But uh, do not do that. It's ridiculous and not worth it. There's nothing after that. It just goes black, right? As Rick would say. But did you ever see that? Um, did you ever oh, watch the, the, the show um, John from Cincinnati that was on HBO? There's a beautiful point where this woman's about to kill herself, and this guy appears to her, and he goes, "Hey, are you thinking of killing yourself?" He like he 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 adopts the tone of like a television commercial. And he's oh like, yeah. We'd prefer you didn't. <laughs> We'd prefer you stuck around and suffered every minute of this. And. That's Sponsored what, by Qualcomm. That's what I would say to people is like, hey, does life seem worth killing yourself? Yeah, it probably is. I'd prefer you didn't. Yeah. I'd prefer you stick around and suffer through every beautiful minute of it and see what happens next, you know? Because who knows what happens next? The promise of next. Not, doesn't appeal to me at all. It doesn't. It really? really doesn't, yeah. No, I thought I thought I thought I was laying out some inspirational shit there. No, I'm sure for lots of people you are. I, I'm sure you saved a couple hundred people right there. But um, no, for me, it, that would never have gotten through. I think the only thing I would have gotten through is, um, you know, I think one of the the common tips is you say like just wait ten minutes. You know, things things feel a little bit better ten minutes later after spending some time with people. And uh, yeah, and uh, well, and also you get caught in. Um, just get caught in brainstorms people. where your, your your chemicals are firing in a certain yeah, direction. Yeah, absolutely. Just break that cycle. Yeah. And uh, for me, there's a I have a very particular structure that I have to stick to, and it, it keeps it all at bay. And um, you know, about the right amount of sleep and water and exercise and all this stuff, and things start to slip and things start to get real dark. And it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, brutal thing. Yeah. Suicide, murder. Want to talk about anything else fun? You 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 brought up earlier that you have um, some ties in the BDSM community and the kink community, and you and I have both uh, uh, acknowledged that we have some 
interest in the the the, the fetish of mind control and mm. you know that whole power play aspect of sexuality um, I I feel it is really to me it's a it's a, a psychological uh, ex, uh, uh, like laboratory you know where you get to deal with some of the deeper aspects of your psyche in a more proactive nature absolutely I uh, yeah I don't really have a point to make on it but it's interesting shit it is you um I mean to me I mean there's a lot of aspects for me that came up with sort of toxic masculinity or the sense of you need power. There's a lot of sense of from my childhood. I don't like the term uh, toxic masculinity. I prefer shadow masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. There's 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 light masculinity and shadow masculinity and light femininity and shadow femininity. I can't tell if you're being serious. No, absolutely duality in all things. No, not in all things, right? You can never be too judicious or you can never be too be too judicious. Of course. Judicious. That's a hard word. Um, too judicious? Oh my god! Of course you can. You can't too, be forgiving. Can you be too fair? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Too fair. Yeah, too fair. Uh, ignoring the the um, the in uh, balance of life and how certain things acquire more energy than others. Of course, yeah. In fact, I would actually uh, I postulate that life in itself is incredibly unfair i agree i'm talking about your personal decision you're weighing a decision can you ever be too unfair i'm going back to aristotelian ethics here of of there are virtues of you call it the golden mean the extreme for say courage of being foolhardy and running into burning buildings for fun and, mm-hmm. and for being too cowardly to go help somebody um but he would he famously wrote that there were there were these virtues that you it could never have too much of you could never be too judicious. You could never be too fair in a decision that you're making. Mm. You can have never have too good of a judgment here. Uh. But anyway, I toxic masculinity. Most things are a spectrum. Gender is a spectrum. It's not just a single ended line. Toxic masculinity is a buzzword. It's, it's, it's not. A, it's a virtue signal. Yeah. Go it's fuck not, yourself. It's not a real thing. It's it, not a real thing. It's bullshit. not a real thing. It's absolutely not Nobody's a real ever thing. told you to be a man or man up or sack up or Yeah. Yeah, that's they it. Absolutely have. No, that's not what toxic masculinity means. Yeah. Toxic toxic masculinity means that that there's a certain uh, portion of the 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 populace right now that, that believes that there is an inherent flaw to masculinity that makes it worth eradicating. That is absolutely not it. It's absolutely it. Because if you have a light and a dark aspect to a to a, 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 a personal trait or a, a, a thought area, that's seeing the good and the bad of it. If you call something toxic, it needs to be eradicated. Sure. Yeah. I'm talking one one version of masculinity the, needs to be it's, eradicated. It's, it's, it's a word that's been attached to masculinity by people who Not want all to of masculinity. No. <laughs> what part of masculinity are people talking about that's not toxic? I'm not talking about a part of masculinity. I'm talking about one version of masculinity that says to be a man, you have to put down women. You have to have sexual conquest. You have to be a man. You have to be repress your feelings and get mm-hmm. through this stuff. And yeah. if you adopt that version of masculinity as what it means to be a man, it will rot you from the inside. It will cause you to kill yourself. It will cause you 
to mistreat people and just be an awful human being. It's, but that's a fallacy. I mean, like that, 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 that is, that is a, all those things that you said are aspects of a person. They can be aspects of a person, but it is by no means the entirety of anybody. Like that does sure. not exist. It doesn't mean it doesn't. It's not real. That just because those <laughs> it's, aspects. Like, it's a story. It's, those it's aspects, an absolute story. as a cluster of aspects of of a person, of of characteristics of a person. That is a that is a common theme in American masculinity it, for it, sure. It, is that it, this it, is what it, it means it, to be a man? It's an expression of traits, mm-hmm. but those same traits in other circumstances are virtues, like the ability to be dominant. In one situation, is is somebody will call it toxic masculinity. Sure. In another situation, it's the difference between life and death. I absolutely agree. A single aspect here can be good or bad. The cluster itself, we call toxic toxic masculinity, and say if you were. But when you the we in that is very important because yes, the people who are saying yeah. it aren't looking for any positive aspects of masculinity. There's no. I cu- am. There's no coupling of it with the positive part of being. A man. And here's the thing about being a man. I can give you a much healthier version of masculinity. You can be emotional and you can feel things and you can be considerate. And that is a masculine. And you mm-hmm. can, you can like soft things and you can like, I had this beautiful trip one time when I was uh, uh, taking a bunch of San Pedro cactus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, San Pedro and, and, uh, peyote, uh, have mescaline in them. Mm-hmm. And um, in the traditional culture, um, ayahuasca and, and all of that is the grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. But peyote and mescalito is the <laughs> grandfather. Mm. And so ayahuasca and the DMT thing is all supposed to encapsulate feminine energy. Okay. And peyote and, and San Pedro and mescaline are supposed to encapsulate masculine energy. And it was the first time I'd ever done a masculine um psychedelic interesting and i had this amazing epiphany that the difference between masculinity and femininity is this masculinity clears a space a safe space for femininity to to exist in and femininity exists in there and creates in that space and so the violence and the the pushing out that we 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 associate with masculinity that's an effort to make a safe area so that femininity can create in that area. And it doesn't have to be male, doesn't have to be female. It exists, both things exist in both of us. But I get very sensitive when people talk shit about masculinity because to me it is very much part of a system that is very sacred and very holy and like very much the creation of everything. And yes, in modern life, a lot of the aspects of males and the way that we were traditionally like am I not inherent right? aspects taught aspects no i i mean nobody taught me to bang bitch or nobody i wasn't not genetic knowledge to bang bitches and absolutely you, know. you have genetic knowledge to bang bitches like right. the, the, the men, aspects yeah. of the aspects of masculinity are universal all the way out to islands that have never met anybody else. Like if you go to an island, like if you went to Papua New Guinea in like the 1400s when they had never met anybody else, they had men and women and the men were masculine and the men did all the same fucking things that everybody else, every other man did. And they hadn't learned it from anybody. It was inherent from testosterone and evolutionary 
forces. It's, it's laid out there. And my only point is, like, there's just so much good about everybody and all of these forces. Like, I would never, I would never go around going, like, toxic femininity. It, like, why? Why do that to the other humans that you live with? It's just so mean. <laughs> I, I see it as a description of a phenomenon where how does... You know, that shithead Brock kid get away with raping somebody and get off. You, you remember the, the surfer who was, he was such a good athlete that he doesn't need any jail time. Or he needs a very minimal amount of jail time. Something like he, he full on raped an unconscious woman and, and he was discovered. You shouldn't rape. I'm going to go, I'm going to go out on a limb here and we're going to, I'm going to say it. You shouldn't rape unconscious women. Wow. I'm, yeah. Wow. <laughs> this is, this you were is, asking me what, yeah, what makes genocide crazy. bad earlier. No, um, and we were talking. We were talking earlier about like Louis C.K. versus um, uh, Bill Cosby, and like true monsters. I mean, true monsters exist. I mean, Bill Cosby is a true monster. Like I'm almost to the point where you can't even judge him on a human scale anymore. It's sure. more like an alligator. <laughs> like you just look at him and it's like, oh, you're not a human. You're just a a, 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 a blip of nature that like needs to be dealt with, mm. you know, that like escaped into, whereas Louis CK is a, a person who made a bad decision. Yeah. A yeah. bunch of times. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I actually don't know what the point I was going for there was, but there is the question you posed to me was why would you characterize this part of masculinity as bad? And it's, to me, again, and maybe this is just that I see the world through this intellectualized lens. Um, for me, it's a way of identifying a pattern that we see in men who are abusing situations, they're abusing their power, they're abusing other people, other human beings, especially women, and they um, that cluster that there are forces from our society that have taught them that that is okay, and not only okay, it's a good thing to mm-hmm. be this macho you know, sexual, uh, dominant. And I'm not figure. denying, I'm not denying that culture meets biology and like creates something. Sure. It does not push them to be the best versions of themselves or to be, you know, um, it depends on the context. I mean, f- for right now where yeah. we are, a lot of, a lot of masculine traits are losing value for sure. They are not valued like they used to be like, it's not valued to be able to kill somebody in modern culture, Sure, but you know, you don't have to go very far back to that. You really wanted to make sure that the man you were with could kill people for you. Like that was very important. Not that long ago. Yeah. And to some people still important. Um, sure. That actually brings us totally full circle back to being a serial killer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Serial killing is almost, it's, it's a flip side of protective killing because protective killing is like, Oh, I am capable of fending off intruders, right? Mm-hmm. Serial killing is I am the hunter and who's capable of fending off me. You know, it is a, it is an odd inversion because there aren't wolves among people. They're not really. I mean, like, 
maybe in business or sure. or, or, or culturally, right. but there aren't people. There aren't a lot of people just roaming around killing. Uh, serial killers do, right? And it's fascinating, enticing, I guess, in a way, but like challenging and. I've never seen the appeal. No, I, I would, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on it. Whatever. You said you were the sociopath and you thought of killing people a bunch. Not for fun. Just just for, for uh, practical reasons? Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. When you're getting your shit beaten out of you every couple of days. It's like, yeah, well, usually when I think it's of a killing people, thing. It would be, it, it's killing people almost like as an artistic expression. Yeah? Yeah. I, I honestly don't really fantasize about killing people I have problems with that much. It's not problems with, I mean, okay, it's problems with, but you're serious. okay, you're all okay, we're co-workers. So. You're talking about serious problems with. Yeah, yeah, I was talking about. Like Arya Stark. My like, mental health, you know, was, you know, in serious jeopardy, and you know, this is a way that I saw as, as out, but um, obviously I did not act on that. So like more, more, alive, more really of a, like a, not, not even like revenge, but more like solution to immediate problems. Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely, yeah. Um, well, the, the, actually, then that is more of like a defensive kill. Right. Okay, yeah. then not to say that I, had, you know, don't have the, you know, kill your boss fantasies that everybody else does, but um, not yeah. these days, but at times, sure. Yeah. It's solving, yeah, it was, a, it was a practical thing, but there, you know, what I was getting at earlier was that there's an emotional detachment you need to be able to make that jump. And that emotional detachment is not healthy for you in modern society. No. I don't recommend it to anybody. It's but not. It, it has been a very singularly unique experience for me. Yeah. Um, well, you know, they, they say that there's a certain amount of um, uh, CEOs and, and politicians who are either sociopathic or psychopathic, mostly sociopathic, mostly people who are able to, to divorce themselves from like... Um, a lot of emotional stimuli mm. and able to like kind of uh, uh, kind of executive functionally keep themselves on a sure. yeah. track. And that to me, honestly has always seemed really appealing because I'm, I'm, I'm so drawn off my path by emotion at every Man, step. You are, I feel like you're in the box these days and um, no, I'm no a, offense. I'm a raw nerve. It's just uh, in what box? I don't know. You're, you're coming back to sort of justifying the, the current way the police works and the, the way that empires formed these, you know, countries that we have now and, uh, and admiring people who are going to run fortune 500 companies. I don't admire them in the slightest. I mean, I, did, I, well, I do admire people who, who run fortune 500 companies, but what I said just recently wasn't me admiring them. Okay. What I so, so socio, sociopathy in CEOs I think is um, beneficial to be a CEO because you have to make a lot of inhuman decisions as a CEO. Sure. Yeah. That but, that that was that was my only point of it. Yeah, you also said that you'd you'd like that. You would like that ability to to be oh, that cutthroat in business. No. What what I was saying was I would like. To feel a little less than I feel, ah. like because I feel like such a raw nerve all the time. Mm. Um, like my problem is that like I can't make a single decision devoid of emotion. Mm. I try to. I try to get all into stoicism and stuff. Really, but I am just a raw nerve, like most of the time, and uh, I do what I can to either 
uh, you know, yoga and meditate it out or, or drink and smoke pot it out. Yeah. You know, I try all these different. Sure. <laughs> yeah. We all try to get away from our emotions sometimes. But uh, yeah, I am. My, my empathy has been maybe 60% a hindrance and 40% a help Wow. in my life. I think that's, it's not just your life though, right? It is your life in this particular culture. In this particular culture. Right. right yeah. In this particular moment in time. And it's, um, we shouldn't fucking have a culture like this where you can't be a human, you know, you. But I don't think, I don't think I would have fared better anywhere else. Where else would I have fared better? I don't know, Renaissance England, you know, you got the Enlightenment in India, you've got. Uh, you know, like pretty, one or two places. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I sure. Mean, the majority of time in in places like in the past of the past, sure. In the past, yeah. right? We're not. We can also shape what the future is like, mm-hmm. so that we're not in this damn and we have soul sucking and, and culture. And the future that is shaped right now is incredibly open. Like yeah. uh, there's there is a there's a there is a big spectrum available to every single human right now. Like to the point I, I was talking to, uh, I went to, uh, went out with a friend the other night. And Denmark's he, only so big though. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a cynic in some ways. I am not. I, so I truly believe in human beings. I just fucking American culture is awful. Ah, man, it's really so much better than so much. I mean, the culture or what we've accomplished because we have so much power and wealth. Like, I mean, there, there, there's some truly ugly parts of American culture, and I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay that or anything. And it's maybe just, on a, I'll tell you when I switched is after I lived in Russia for a while. Like I came, I came back from <laughs> about Russia. equal. Right? No, you're talking about. Well, I just came back from Russia, just being like, oh my god, what a fucking travesty. Yeah, yeah. It's a travesty of a country. I mean, it is like, it's, it's like if an idea, if an ideology, just had the capacity to ruin a, like half a continent <laughs> and like you can you can you can argue that and you know it, i don't even totally believe that like socialism or communism is like inherently bad or whatever sure i'm just saying that this iteration of human effort is not something to be shit on it is an interesting and honest application of the best that humans can come up with and i haven't seen people demonstrate a lot better on this planet yet. Jeez. Point to me, and you keep saying Denmark, but like... I don't keep saying Denmark. I keep saying, you know... The, the Swedish countries I'm are... Say, all, I keep saying hunter-gatherers. I keep saying, you know, we're... Yes, we're warlike we left, tribes. I mean, we left hunter-gathering... I mean, we left hunter-gathering behind so long before America. Like... Like, I don't know, 50 uh, for, years before America? No, 40, 50,000 years before America. Like, is when we, when we shifted from hunter-gathering to agriculture. Just because hunter-gatherer clans ex- like kept existing doesn't mean that the bulk of humans didn't just sure. pile into agriculture. Sure, sure. <laughs> like, okay, well, not, are you gonna not p- the hunter-gatherer point in time. I'm talking about the, say, again, indigenous... Americans who live off the land and lived in connection with nature and they lived in a sustainable way or they're not trying to be the, the top yeah. of the food chain all the time and dominate everything. And I, and I got destroyed by capitalism. And I am jealous of it. I mm-hmm. wish I lived in that time, right? 
I'm, I wish I lived in the future where we have gotten past what we're doing now and we have the benefits of modern medicine and, and, and all future technology and current technology, but we can live in a sustainable, connected way. Yeah. At, with feeling our emotions is a strength and not a hindrance. Well, I do think that, um, and, and, and I'm not, see, I'm not against you and against oh. all of this on, on all these things. Like, I think the introduction of femininity into um, kind of the producing strain of humanity, whereas, like, femininity was for, for, for however long, like, focused on child rearing. And now it's uh, uh, the feminine energy is being brought kind of into the more um, business. I guess you could say business aspect of life, but there's probably a better worse, better word than that. But just women being in business and more femininity being in like the the, the general spectrum of that thing. I think there's a lot of benefits to that. I think there's, I think that's a that's a beautiful, you know, vial of ink to be broken and into the, uh, the, the general mix. That's so interesting. I, I, uh, I feel like you're working with the existing contracts of femininity and, and masculinity, right? I, I but see I'm not the, talking about, I'm not talking about males and females. I'm talking about, I'm not either. I said femininity and masculinity. Of masculinity and femininity. I'm but you have, you have a pigeonholed what, what those mean. Well, what when do you I, think masculinity oh, and femininity mean? Masculinity is an entire spectrum of aspects of what it means to be a man, right? And no, I, I, well, kind of, yeah, sure. So if you take certain aspects and you put them together and you embrace those as what it means to be a man, that's toxic masculinity. And there's, there are very weak versions of, you know, or, or very um, whole, whole varieties of way of being a man uh, in general and in, in the society and in, with, and outside, in other societies. But um, so in a sense, business is becoming, they're becoming nicer to each other. We're trying to become more cooperative instead of this hardcore competitive destroyer competitors. See, becoming nicer to each other, I wouldn't put on the, the beneficial side of that. I don't think that being nice. That's so strange to me. I, you're seeing Intel and Qualcomm working together to, to share intellectual property, to open up these Cooper, things so they can. Cooperation is good. That's yeah. being nice to each other. Nah, it, okay, sure. I'm, I'm just quibbling over the word nice i've never liked the word nice i don't like it either but yeah. it's a because to me nice nice seems um like it's like being kind without it's a performative it's performative. In, interpersonally exactly. is performative yeah. absolutely cooperative but, um mutually beneficial like um, right. that is stark contrast to the 50s 60s business practices mm -hmm. of yes. kill everybody else right yeah. yeah i absolutely agree i think i think that those aspects i think you know i would love it I would love it if humanity could find some unifying aspect to all get behind. Mm. Like if, if there was one banner that we could hold up as a species, I think it would be amazing. I and don't. I, Man, that's so funny. Go huh. for it. Go for really? it. Let's keep going. Yeah. Well, I just, I don't think anything unifies all of us. Sure. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. So my, my big thesis when I study this philosophy of ethics and, and all, all this Aristotle said there's there's one set of characteristics that if you embody these characteristics as virtues mm -hmm. and you you know you reject this list of vices then you are a happy contented fulfilled person you know what he called eudaimonia and my entire thesis was that was there are multiple lists of those virtues that you can embody and have that eudaimonic experience 
And I, what I got from that was my, where I got that from was my experience growing up uh, this Buddhist household. My, my father was a Buddhist teacher. And what I see is these Tibetan monks who have this very particular, warm, glowing, engaged energy. And then I would meet a Zen Buddhist monk, and he has this very stoic, very mm-hmm. uh, calm, focused <laughs> thing. And they are incredibly fulfilled, and they can incredibly energetic, and they incredibly uh, in tune with, with the world. And they were both entirely valid. So when I look at Aristotle saying, no, there's, there's one way, and you know, it coincidentally happens to be the exact virtues of, of the society he was in, <laughs> and I say, so when I just say, if you were to say, hey, look, here's the list of virtues for all, all humanity. Here's the things that connect all of us. Yeah, the this way. Yeah, and you're, I would say you're totally wrong. Now, this, of course, threw all of my ethics professors for a loop because if you say there's a million different ways of being an ethical person, you have a really hard time going to so, to another culture I, and I saying... Mis, I misrepresented myself okay. <laughs> because I, I agree with you, Okay, everything you just said there. I don't believe that there's one way to be happy. I don't believe there's one way to be right. I don't believe there's one way to be good. Um, What I was saying was, is I am discouraged by the fact that we can't... And I'm, I'm just saying I'm discouraged by it. I don't think that somebody should come in and force this, but I am discouraged by the fact that we can't all align our efforts under one banner. We can't. It, we just can't. And I don't think somebody should come in and force everybody to. It just makes the efforts of humanity feel, I don't know. Masturbatory? Uh, yeah, like a little in vain. That's like how what I feel for me is like, why are we creating all this? Like, okay, the reason I create is that it is part of the human spirit is to solve problems and to, to create and you have to... To really live, you need to be engaging that part of your brain. That has, yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you have some time, create some art. But, um, but you know, the shit we make, like, you know, we've created this consumerist system so that mm-hmm. we can, you know, have some other body buy our shit and validate it, and then we can afford to make more stuff, and they can have more stuff, you know. And, yeah. Or did we create a consumerist system because it uh, funds uh, innovation and innovation is uh, pushing us to higher forms of thought evolution, maybe getting off the planet, maybe colonizing different planets? It was your exact point earlier that we started these cycles of luxury and the luxury begets craving for more luxury. There's something inherent in humans. We can't go back. Like we all want to go back to being hunter gatherers, like at a re- especially dudes. <laughs> if you've if you've experienced that, I that mean, form the of freedom nature, of hunter hunter yeah. gathering is very appealing to a lot yeah. of people. Um, but we can't. We can't. It's very agreed. Yeah. Hard to go backwards. We can create something new. There's something inherent in humans. It's it's. I don't know what it is. I I, I honestly don't know where to point it. And it's not just men. Because it's women too. Mm-hmm. In fact, it might be more women in some ways. <laughs> because women traditionally, and I, I, I won't say right now, but like in, in traditional society, wanted more security and less chance that people were going to murder them. You know? And the more that you built out things like laws and like 
societal norms. Yes, norms are a good one. There was just less rape and murder. Right. (laughs) It's been a long journey. And actually, there's never been a period on this planet where there's less rape and murder than there is now per per capita. I mean, we're in the big piece right now, they call it. Sure. Um, And that might be... That might be the singular triumph of women, like in the background, <laughs> like mm. controlling how things sure. turn out. For sure. Um, I hope, but I don't know. I mean, like, what's the point? What What are we trying to do? We're trying to all get off the planet and go. We're not trying to do Mars anything. Or? We're not trying to do that. We're all trying to live fulfilling lives, yeah. and you know, we need, just need some structure that gives us the opportunity to live some fulfilling life and. Uh, when you message to people like you should have all of this shit and like yeah like so we, say, we lose that fulfilling came life. out with a report that said not only is climate change real but the earth's going to be unlivable in 10 years yeah all of a sudden the entire human race would have one purpose <laughs> right <laughs> it'd be like there's one banner yeah. Okay, yeah. there you I go mean, honestly you know it, and it's actually a theme that's showing up in a lot of movies Recently, is somebody um, uh, like it was in one of the recent Mission Impossible's? It's in Watchmen, but it's like a, an evil master- recent movies right there. It's an, it, an <laughs> evil mastermind comes up with a, 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 a catastrophe so big that it will unite humanity, mm. and it's one of those moments where you're like, like I'm watching or, or, or Thanos in that new Marvel movie, right? right. Like. It's one of those moments where you're watching the bad guy and you're like, I 100% see his point. <laughs> like, yeah. I could absolutely see how that works. Um, I'm not going to, you know, murder half the people in the world or like, like detonate a bunch of nuclear bombs or whatever. Yeah. Some crazy person. But you do see how drawing everybody under one banner, under, you know, the, the, the threat of. If aliens invaded or something, you know, we could all finally come together. And then the second they were gone, we'd all fall apart again. <laughs> like, sure. sure, sure. It's only that, that, that pressure of threat that seems to unite us. It would be nice if, it, if people could be inspired into it. You know, yeah. that would be the hope. Um, but it hasn't seemed to work yet. Yeah. Anytime anybody, any, anytime anybody's tried to inspire all of humanity, except in Denmark, it's except in Denmark. <laughs> whatever they they have the highest suicide rate of anybody in the world. Is that true? Oh, it's absolutely oh, yeah. true. They kill themselves. How oh, great! And there's room for me then. Yeah, because they don't have any. They don't have any higher battles. You know, everything's just kind of cool. <laughs> when yeah. everything's kind of cool, you're like, no. why not check out? <laughs> I don't have anything to do. Why not check out? <laughs> All right, we're we're Go verging ahead. on two hours here. Sweet. So I'm gonna I'm gonna record a, a closing with you. All right. And we'll drop it in wherever it needs to be dropped in. Uh, Tyler, this has been a wandering and wonderful conversation. Yeah, it's been great. It was a great dinner. Uh, thank you very much for bringing that over. Thanks. And I'd love to invite you back to have another conversation some other time. Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I'll catch you on the next one. Yeah. Thanks for having me.